Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kristen Wild. He used to try and like be lazy and wash his dick in the sink because he was uncircumcised before we'd have sex and try and pass it off as a shower. And I was like, that's a European shower. That does not count. <laughs> that and more. But first, the next Risk live stream is on Friday, April 16th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. We have an amazing cast, Oz du Soleil, Kent Whipple, Freddie May Abisamra, and Hannah Sussman. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. And folks, did you know you can hire me personally for storytelling training? I'm currently helping someone with her memoir, someone else with his podcast, someone else with his job interviewing process. I've taught lawyers and doctors, teachers, preachers, activists, life coaches, you name it. Come and find me at kevinallison.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Rodrigo y Gabriela behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Patreon Picks 2. We did this about a year ago where we shared several stories that had been bonus stories on Patreon to show everyone what you're missing out on if you're not a member over at Patreon. Like this week, for example, the bonus story over at Patreon is by Mike Blum. And I have this feeling, but because I'm rolling, that feeling continues. And I can't quite tell if I've stopped pooping. We also do a lot of interviews with storytellers, personal check-ins from me. There's lots of bonus content to be found on patreon.com slash risk. It means, well, it means the existence of the show. <laughs> the support that our fans give us to keep this running. And we talk every week about how we might be able to expand how we might be able to delegate, how we might be able to bring new kinds of content onto the show if we have the resources to do that. So become a member if you haven't already at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story that Jono Wilson shared 
at a Risk Live show in Los Angeles before the pandemic hit. Before that, we're going to hear a little anecdote that Liz Esposito sent in to us. But before that, Vin Brew from the very first live stream we ever did. That was one of the most memorable nights in Risk history. You can find Vin on Instagram at Vin Brew, and here he is now with a story we call American Gigolo. So it was the summer of 2006, and I was sitting at my desk at my old job, slacking off playing solitaire, when I heard the doodaloo of the old instant messenger. And it was a screen name that I didn't recognize, but I saw they wrote, Hey Vince, how's it going? And I was like, oh great, it's gotta be someone from work. Because only people from my job called me Vince, which happens to be the only version of my name that I do not care for, but I never felt like it was my place to tell them I didn't like that. So everyone just called me Vince at this job for 13 years. Oh anyway, I, uh, I wrote back to this mystery person and I was like, hey, what's up? Who is this? And they responded, it's Jane, your old intern. Remember me? And I was like, Jane. I did remember Jane because whenever I would ask her to do something or pass by in the hallway, she would just glare at me with this very intense death stare like she was trying to peer into my soul. And she also dressed like she was going to a funeral every day, just all black, head to toe. So she kind of creeped me out a little bit. And I was kind of wondering why she was getting in touch with me. But I figured she was probably looking for a job and just wanted to use me as a reference. So I was like, oh yeah, hey, what's up? How's it going? And she responded like, good, good. Um, this is a little embarrassing, but I always had a big crush on you when I was there. And I was like, that's what those looks were? I thought you wanted to kill me. That's an interesting technique you've got. <laughs> but I was flattered. She was a very attractive young lady, despite the whole Adams Family vibe she had going on. And when I say young lady, we were both in our mid-twenties, so this was not a very scandalous affair. But I was just kind of wondering what she was looking for. Like, did she just want to hook up? Or was she looking for something more? Because if so, I was not interested in getting romantically involved with anyone I was kind of living the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle at the time, uh, parading around various dive bars all over the city in nothing but a little red speedo and a whistle as the frontman for my band, the South Jersey Seashore Lifeguard Convention Band, which, yeah, I was certain was going to make it big any day now. You know, the record <laughs> labels were going to come a-knocking, and uh, the money and the fame and the women would follow. That was the fantasy, anyway. The reality, which was rapidly sinking in, was that I was delusionally insane. I could see the boxes of unsold CDs piling up all over my apartment. The walls were literally closing in on me, and I was starting to feel like a total failure and just full of self-hatred. But uh, Because music, to me, was a very sacred, kind of spiritual, personal thing. And at this point, I felt like I was this washed-up, cliched, wannabe rock star asshole. But I was going down with the ship. Like, my plan was to just die drunk in a gutter rather than ever settle down and have a normal life. So I just wrote back to Jane, and I was like, cool, thanks. Appreciate that. And then she wrote, this is going to sound kind of weird, but can I pay you to have sex with me? 
Apparently, she was not looking for a job. She was hiring, as it turned out. And, uh, hmm. yeah, I was like, <laughs> uh, I don't know how to answer this. Because I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, I guess I have sort of been whoring it up all over town for a while. But do I want to be like an actual prostitute? <laughs> and the answer was a resounding yes. Of course I did. Are you kidding me? It's perfect. There's no commitment, there's sex involved, and money, which I desperately need to keep this rock and roll fantasy alive. Like, I've gone into tons of debt, my job doesn't pay me a lot of money, I could use a little side hustle, and this could be perfect, I could be a gigolo. This would be amazing. So, uh, we agreed on $150 for my services for an evening, and she texted me that weekend when she was in the city and uh, we met at my apartment and I was a little surprised when I opened the door because the sort of dour goth girl that I was expecting was not there and this sort of very sexy party girl showed up who had this tight white tank top on and these little cut off jean shorts and I was kind of confused like I don't know why she's paying me she could probably <laughs> just go home with any guy she wants right now but I was not going to ask any questions because I was very happy with the situation that we had going on here and she was a little tipsy, she'd been at the club all night, and she just kind of pounced on me and started ripping my clothes off. And I ripped her clothes off, and she had this amazing body. And we started having this wild sex, uh, which was great. And uh, we finish, and she collapses on me, and we're laying there in bed. And it's kind of awkward, because I don't really know this person at all, and I don't know what to say. And I don't know how to bring up the money thing, because I've never done this before, and I don't want to make it seem like that's all I care about, even though that's all I care about. And um, before I could say anything, she gets a text message from her friends, and was like, oh shit, they're my ride, they're going back to Long Island, I gotta go, and I'm sorry I don't have enough cash on me right now, but I'll get you next time, I'm coming in next week, we can do this again if you want. And I was like, yes, are you kidding me? This is the best job I have ever had in my life, by far. This is incredible. So the next week comes around and she texts me that she's coming back into the city and she asked me if I need anything for my apartment. And I was like, nah, I'm good. And she was like, well, I would just, I'd rather give you a gift than give you cash because that seems kind of shady. And I was like, I don't think the cops are going to bust in. Like, I'm not running a brothel out of here just yet. Um, <laughs> but she was like, no, I just feel like it would be kind of like, you know, sleazy and cheap and sort of demeaning towards you to give you cash. And I was thinking, like, it would be more demeaning to not give me cash, because that's what we agreed upon. But I didn't want to push my luck or, you know, put up a fight. So I was like, what does my apartment need? And the answer I came up with was $300 worth of vodka and cigarettes, which is probably what I would have spent the money on anyway, let's be honest. And she just wrote back, like, haha, sure, whatever. So she shows up at my apartment that night, and I open the door, figuring she needs help with all the bags from the liquor store but she was empty-handed, and I was just kind of like, what happened to what I asked for? And she was like, oh, come on, like, were you serious about that? Like, you don't need that, that stuff's bad for you. And I was like, yeah, but, yeah, that's what I asked for. And she was just like, oh, come on, and just kind of stuck her tongue down my throat. And we started having sex again. <laughs> and this time, I'm just wondering, like, am I being taken for a literal and figurative ride here? Like, what's going on? Like, am I still gonna get paid for this? And I know, like, I'm watching her, you know, on top of me, this beautiful girl, and I'm like, I should be enjoying this, but it's the principle of the thing, you know? It's still, it's just nagging at me, like, this is driving me crazy. And uh, we finish <laughs> again, and uh, she gets up, and she's like, oh, I gotta go, my friends are leaving, and thanks a lot, that was a lot of fun. 
And I was just like, I was like, whoa, 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 like, what are you, this is not okay, okay? Like, I'm not just some piece of meat on call for you to come over and fuck whenever you want, okay? Like, that's not the deal we have. This is not okay. Um, but I didn't say any of that. I just kind of laid there in bed helplessly watching her get dressed and thinking to myself, I really need to get a pimp if I'm going to keep this job because they would know how to deal with this. I don't know how to deal with this. And, uh, and she left, and I just laid there in bed just so angry uh, about the whole situation and mostly at myself for never being able to speak up for myself, whether it be asking co-workers to call me by a name that I actually like or for uh, payment for services rendered, in this case, with my body. But uh, I just felt so totally worthless in that moment, and I just wanted to disappear, which I started doing with the help of uh, $300 worth of vodka and cigarettes that I paid for out of my own pocket. Mm. And uh, the next couple weeks were kind of uh, pretty dark for me, and then she texted me again that she was in the city and she wanted to come over, and I guess because I was a desperate, drunken, lonely loser with no self-esteem, I said, sure, why not? And she came over, and this time she said she wanted to talk. And I was like, okay, let's talk. And she started talking about uh, Shabbos, the Jewish observance of Sabbath, which I thought was, you know, odd, because she didn't strike me as a very religious person, given everything that had transpired so far. And uh, she asked me what I felt about that. And I was like, that seems like a great, you know, tradition. And I respect your beliefs and everyone's beliefs. I just kind of have a different set of beliefs that I adhere to, which are not really tied to any particular organization. And I have my own sort of spirituality and all that. And um, I was enjoying having this conversation. It was like the first time we'd ever, you know, talked and I was opening up to her. And then she pretty quickly shut me up and was just like, well, you know, we can't get married until you convert. And and I just burst out laughing because I assumed she was joking. You know, like this was the first real conversation we'd ever had. And she basically knew one thing about me and was like, yeah, that's not going to work for me. And I was very confused, but I could see in her eyes that she um, was not joking. She was kind of hurt by my laughter. And I was like, oh shit, this girl is crazy. Like, I guess she thought I was going to be her hooker with a heart of gold. Like, maybe she had seen Pretty Woman too many times with some weird form of conceptual dyslexia, because that's not how that movie goes, from what I recall. Uh, it's a very different movie. And I realized that she wasn't trying to buy my body. She was trying to buy my soul. And that was already sold to the devil a long time ago. <laughs> Satan. Rock and roll. Um, but I told her, I was just like, I, I don't know what you think is happening here. But we're not getting married um, anytime, ever. And I think she sort of took that as a challenge and started giving me those sexy eyes, those weird, creepy, sexy eyes, and was just like, well, we'll see about that. And then she stuck her hand down my pants and tried to fuck me again. But this time, my penis stuck up for me. And by that, I mean it did not stick up for me. It did not work at all. Um, it was like my brain and my dick switched places where my brain was like, sex, yes. And my dick was like, dude, have some fucking self-respect. What's wrong with you? That had never happened to me before in my life. And I made the mistake of saying, this has never happened to me before in my life. And she got very angry and left my apartment. And I was just sitting there just so ashamed and embarrassed and feeling like a broken human being. But mainly what I felt was relief that she was gone and this was yeah. over. 
and uh, I picked up my guitar and I started fooling around and ended up a couple hours later I completed writing a new song called Whore which uh, I was certain was going to be the next hit single in America <laughs> it was not but uh, I was just overcome with this inner peace and joy and I was like oh yeah this is what I believe in this is this is my religion and uh, I realized that I needed to start taking that and myself a little more seriously and respecting that and I started writing songs every day for months and hundreds and hundreds of songs. If this virus kills me, I will be the new Tupac. There's thousands of songs to be released. But um, I uh, also changed the name of the band to Lifeguard Nights. And, well, a little easier to remember. And uh, after about a year, a uh, little record label did come a-knocking and ended up putting out our first studio album, appropriately titled The Church of Song. And if anyone would like a copy, I believe I have like eight or nine hundred CDs left over out of a thousand. It was not a commercial success by any means, but I no longer felt like a failure. And uh, before I go, this uh, because of this virus, I'm currently out of work. So if anyone happens to have like an extra, let's say, hundred and fifty dollars laying around, wants to have a good time, call me. Um, We'll figure out the whole six-foot distancing thing, and I will just have to ask the wife for approval first. She said it's fine, so that's cool. And uh, I will also need that money up front, because fool me once. Um, anyway, thanks, everybody. I was Vincent Brew, or you can call me Vin, Vinny, Vincenzo, anything except Vince. Thank you. Stay safe out there, everybody. I have anxiety. And not like the cool 2020 millennial anxiety that everybody has, but more like the one where you have to take pills to go outside. And it always amazes me how long I waited to get help for my anxiety. And I would ask my mom about that, like why did it take so long for any of us to recognize that I had an issue? And she would say, oh no, you don't have an issue. You're fine. It was just the way you were raised. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? She was like, well, your dad will let you watch scary movies all the time. You saw Jurassic Park when you were like four. You saw Jaws when you were five. He would sit you down in front of Law & Order SVU like it was Aesop's Fables. And she was totally right. I immediately remembered getting sat down in front of these cop procedurals and my dad pointing at the screen and being like, Elizabeth, the world is a terrible place. See that violated, decapitated cheerleader hanging from the ceiling? That could be you. See that corpse sodomized with a banana? That could be your boyfriend. And it's hilarious now, but as a kid, I was like six or seven, I really internalized it and it really did scare me. So when I would go out in the world, I would get kind of nervous. Usually everything was fine, but I do remember one Christmas, my grandma took me to this hardware store in Connecticut. It's Christmas time and you know what that means. It's called Vinny's No Longer Exists, but it was so great. Oh, touch of time. And at Christmas time, they would have a talking Christmas tree and a reindeer head. It was like a mix between a mall Santa and the Rainforest Cafe. So you would go and you would talk to these little robots and tell them what you wanted for Christmas and they would talk back and it was pretty cute. So, my grandma took me, 
and I had already talked to the deer in the tree. And then she had to go and shop for light bulbs or something, something boring. And I remember, I was like, okay, I'll play a game where I'll just look at her feet and follow them. So I was following her navy blue kids up and down the aisles, not looking at anything else but her feet. And after doing this for a while, I look up and the person whose navy blue kids I think are my grandma's, she's not my grandma. And I realize I don't know where my grandma is and I'm in the middle of the Christmas section. Now this was an incredible Christmas section. It had fake trees, all different colors, like Charlie Brown. It had fake snow everywhere and being pumped down from the ceiling. There were like caroler robot children in one corner and like a full Christmas village with a working train. For any other kid, it would have been absolute magic to find yourself there. But for me, it was terrifying. I immediately thought, any of these people in this section, probably all of them, are gonna kidnap and murder me. So instead of screaming, because that would draw too much attention to the fact that I was alone, I had to think fast. So I slowly backed into the corner with the caroling Christmas children. And I started to move like they did, you know, with the little prayer hands going back and forth, kind of lolling my head from side to side and singing Silent Night. And I thought this was brilliant. I would definitely be able to hide. My grandma would come find me. She would pick me out of the robot children. But to my shock and horror, I began to attract a crowd. There's like a semicircle forming around me of all these strangers, and I'm flipping out internally, and I just keep saying to myself, just play it cool, girl, just play it cool. None of these people will know that you're a real girl. It'll be fine. But I'm really, really trying not to wet myself. <laughs> and then, just woman, I'm about to lose it. Over the loudspeaker, I hear a very annoyed cashier go, Elizabeth Esposito, to register one, your grandma is very worried about you. And I am so relieved. And I take off like a shot towards the cash registers. But I'm still scared because it's, it's a big hardware store. There's a long way for a little six-year-old to run. So I'm not even singing, screaming silent night at the top of my lungs, just in case any lurking baby snatchers are in the aisles. And I make it breathless to my completely exasperated grandma. So looking back, I definitely need pills to go outside. But the SVU definitely didn't help. Hi. Uh, so I grew up in Massachusetts. Both my parents from Massachusetts, very Irish Catholic family, like so Irish Catholic that I went to Catholic school from the first grade through college. I went to the first college university in the country. So a lot of prayers, 
prayers all the time, not just in church. And for little things and also big things, like we would, you know, constantly be saying like, please, St. Anthony, help me find my keys, which works. I don't know. That's like the thing that definitely works. Um, and also being like, dear Lord, please don't let the groundhog see his shadow. Because I don't know if you know this about Massachusetts, but the, uh, the winters are um, bullshit. <clears throat> Um, they're the worst, they're so long, they're so dark, they're so cold. So when I decided to move to Los Angeles to pursue the dream of acting and writing and comedy, the winters I did not miss. And when I got to LA, I realized there was a totally different vibe than Massachusetts, but I really bought into it, I really liked it. Like I was still Irish Catholic, but I was like way more spiritual. You know, I practice gratefulness. I started meditating. And one of the things that I loved to do the most was start my day by going to the beach. And if you haven't been to the beach in the early morning in Los Angeles, I highly recommend it. There is a different breed of person that starts their day on the beach. Like if you're like going for a jog on the beach, there'll be people who are just waiting to make eye contact with you. <laughs> And when you finally do, they're like, have a great day. It's gonna be a good one. <laughs> it's so positive. It's the best way to start the day. So as I said, I was pursuing this acting thing and I finally got a job and it was in uh, March. It was like four years ago this month. And I had to do it on a Sunday morning. <clears throat> and so I went out the night before like an Irish Catholic and drank too much. And I woke up the next day and I was a little hungover and I wanted to sleep in, but I thought, no, you know what? March is the worst month in Massachusetts. Like it's in between spring and uh, winter and the snow is gone except for the really dirty stuff on the side of the road and it's still dark and it's terrible. So I was like, fuck that, I'm going to the beach today. So I go down to the beach and it's early and there's no one there and it's so serene I meditate a little bit, and then I walk into the water, and I dive in, and I come back up. I'm totally refreshed. I'm like, see you later, hangover. And then I tread water for a minute, and I turn around, and I look at the shore. I'm like, oh, I'm a little further than I would have thought. <clears throat> and I started to swim back in. And it wasn't really moving, and I was like, okay, ocean, calm down. <laughs> The ocean didn't care. So I put my head under and I started freestyling. And when I came up, I was even further out. <clears throat> and it was funny, I, I went very quickly from like, this is fine, I've been swimming since I was a young kid, to help! <laughs> help! But there was no one on the beach, still. And so I'm trying to think to myself, like, what do I do? I'm already starting to get a little gassed out because I'm starting to breathe quicker and the water is just heavy on top of me. And I'm trying to kind of swim in, but then I'm like, that's not helping. So I'm just treading water and then I'm starting to slap the water and just yell, hoping that someone will see me. But at this point, I'm really far out. Like the lifeguard stand is like this big and I, I, I don't know what to do. And I start having these thoughts like where I'm just like, this is it, this is it. I was going to finally have an acting job and now I'm gonna die. 
And I really had the thought where I was like, my friends are gonna be so pissed. What a stupid way to die. Don't go in all the way, you're from Boston. Dip your foot in and be thankful and go back to your job. But so, like a good Irish Catholic boy, I just started saying the Our Father. I was just Our Father, who are in heaven, how been there. I'm just going through it over and over and over again. And I'm looking at the shore, getting further and further away. And all of a sudden, I just hear like, hey, you need some help? <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I pictured God sounding like. And I'm looking around, and this kayaker, who must have been coming from the south and just kind of got pushed back, same as me, spotted me. And he's like, real deal kayaker. He's got the hat on that covers the shoulders because he knows he's going to be out there for a long time. He's like, hey, what's going on over there? You all right? And I'm like, no, please help me. So he paddles over to me, and I hold on to the back of his kayak. And he's like, ah, oh, that was a close call, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah, but I, I also... At the same time, I, I noticed that as he's trying to go in, because I'm basically his anchor, we're just, now we're two of us are getting pulled out. And he's like, oh, well, that's not good. I guess you're, okay. Well, what's your name? I'm, I'm, I'm Jono. I'm Henry. Nice to meet you. It's very nice to meet you. I'm like, maybe we should try to catch somebody's attention right now. Um, and so he, he picks up his oar and he starts waving it around and I'm yelling and Finally, we see a SUV come over to the lifeguard stand and the lights are on it. But I swear, I, at this point, I'm like, that might be for somebody who's halfway closer than us because there's no way he's, I can barely see them. How are they going to see us? Thank the Irish Catholic God, they did see us. And so they come out in the speedboat and I get on. And now that I was off Henry's uh, kayak, he, you know, could finally get back in without me, thankfully. So, you know. All right, see you later, Jono. Be more careful next time, sonny. You know, and he, he heads back in. And I get on the, the boat, and the lifeguards were actually really cool. They were like, that was pretty rough, huh? And I was like totally out of breath and they said listen we're gonna um bring you in as close as we can but the current is so strong that i'm gonna have my flippers on and you have to hold on to my you know Baywatch thingy and i'll help to pull you in so the the boat gets up to the shore as close as they can and we hop off and also like this is a moment where i really found out that the lifeguards can swim you think you can swim? The lifeguards can swim. Like every two minutes I'd be holding that thing and they just like take me. Just take me. So we get back on the shore and I am totally like discombobulated. My feet haven't been on land in a long time. I look up at the guys and I'm like, so you know, what what is this? Are you like an ambulance? So I owe you like five hundred bucks now? And they're like, no, just you're you're fine. Uh, and they were like, Do you realize? you were almost three quarters of a mile out in the water. And I was like, what time is it? I had been out there for 45 minutes. And they were like, just hydrate, go home. And I was like, okay. So I start walking back down the beach and this man who's sitting in a beach chair, uh, he just gets up and he sees me and he just gives me a hug. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> felt so good. And he like held me back. He was like, I saw you out there. I thought you were a goner. 
thank God you're in such good shape. And I said, if you saw me out there and you thought I was a goner, and the only thing you could think was that, I mean, it doesn't get more LA than that, does it? And so I still say prayers, little prayers, big prayers, to the same God that I've always said my prayers to. And, you know, religion has been debated for literally centuries. But every time that Henry, my angel, pops into my head, I like to think that there is something bigger out there, whether you call it the universe or energy or the Irish Catholic God, that's looking out for us. Thank you. This is Risk, this is Smashing Pumpkins behind me now, and we just heard from John O. Wilson, a story he shared live on stage in Los Angeles uh, about a year and a half ago. You can find John O. on Instagram, at John O. Wilson. And before that, we heard a little anecdote that Liz Esposito sent in. John LaSala did the audio editing there. We occasionally do these compilations on Patreon of various little anecdotes that people sent in to us. Those are a real treat. Yet another reason to become a member at patreon.com slash risk. Another kind of bonus content you'll find on our Patreon are these check-ins we've done, like recent ones, with Amy Salloway, Don Fraser, and Ernest Anfin. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. 
Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Folks, thestorystudio.org is where you will find so many storytelling training opportunities, like the two-day storytelling for personal growth workshop that Gail Thomas is teaching on April 10th and 11th. These storytelling for personal growth workshops are mostly for absolute beginners who might have hesitated to take a storytelling workshop before, just want to dip their toes in. It's a way to brainstorm on your memories, explore some of the themes from some of the eras along the way in your life. And the Story Studio teaches corporate workshops, too. We get the biggest rave reviews. We've had so many people tell us, my business has had a lot of workshops over the years, even for storytelling. But the one you guys at the Story Studio brought to us was so much clearer, so practical. We're already following the steps you taught us and making money from it. So don't miss out. It is all at thestorystudio.org. We have two final stories that, like everything on this episode, were previously only available on our Patreon. Both of these stories were shared at the same New York live show from years ago when we were still at the People's Improv Theater. In a little bit, we're going to hear from David Lawson. But before that, a story by Kristen Wilde. Here's Kristen now with a story we call Life Force. everyone. It's nice to see you. My name is Kristen Wild. I'm here to tell you a little story that happened um, to me back, uh, the, it was the end of the summer in 2001. It was August and it was right before my birthday, which is September 1st. I was up in Rochester visiting my family and friends. Very exciting up in Rochester, uh, where everyone goes to vacation. And uh, it was a nice relaxing vacation. My friend Mickey had offered to take me out for a pre-birthday celebration. And during dinner, she said, oh, you know, I have a surprise for you. I'm, I'm going to take you to my psychic, my personal psychic, for a reading. Well, I always liked that kind of stuff. I was kind of a sucker for the whole medium thing. So I was more than game to go along. So we went all the way out to, I don't know if anyone knows Rochester, but Greece is a suburb way out. 
So we get to the psychic's house. She's like this chain-smoking woman in her living room. And I thought, okay, we'll give it a try. Um, so she tells me, you know, before we do your reading, you have to, you know, just write down 10 questions, things that you might be interested in that you want to know about. And then she was going to, you know, summon the spirits and hopefully they would channel through her and give me all my answers. So I went along with it. At the time, I was um, living with my fiancé and our two-and-a-half-year-old son. So, you know, I had some pretty boring questions, sort of the, the same old, same old thing that you would expect, right? Will my son get into a preschool? Because it's New York, right? <laughs> uh, will my fiancé get a, a better job? You know, it, will I stay at my job? You know, all the kind of stuff that all of us neurotic New Yorkers ask about. You know, things that really aren't that exciting. Uh, but one of the questions I did ask was, what's the future hold for my fiancé, Michael, and I? You know, like, like it was going to hold something like yachts or whatever. I, I didn't know. <laughs> I was just hoping for the best, right? Just writing some shit down. So my friend Mickey, who, you know, was always on the prowl, finally finished her reading because she wanted to know all about when Prince Charming was coming and when was he coming, when was he coming, when was he coming. But, you know, the psychic seemed very perplexed about that. Um, so she was glad to move on to me because, you know, at least it was maybe something different. So she starts the reading and, you know, she gives me all the sort of things I expected. You'll be at the job until it doesn't suit you any longer. Um, okay. Uh, she says, well, you know, your son will get into a school. There will be lots of options. Well, yes, okay. Uh, and then she gets to me and my fiancé, Michael. And she, for the first time during the whole time, she looked, like, kind of confused. And she didn't say anything. And I said, um, I thought maybe she didn't hear me. I said, uh, uh, Michael, me and Michael. <laughs> and, you know, she said, well... You know, I'm really sorry. This has never happened to me before. And she looked like a little bewildered. And I said, well, what hasn't happened to you before? She said, well, when I sort of asked about Michael, I just saw nothing. I just saw nothing. It was blank. It was just white. And she said, I've never had that happen before. And I said, well, what do you mean you didn't have it happen before? And of course, I'm neurotic. I'm like, is he cheating? You can tell me anything bad. What's happening? And she's like, no, 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 it's nothing like that. I would tell you. She said, I just, I don't see anything. It's like he disappears. And so, you know, I'm thinking, well, that's a little shady. So, uh, you know, I got in the car and we go back home. The next day, Michael drives up to Rochester to join me. Before he even gets out of the car, I'm on him like a panther. I'm like, what do you mean? What happened? Where are you going? Where's the bank account? Where's the woman? Who is it? I was like neurotic. I'm like ripping him a new one in the driveway. My mother's embarrassed. She's like, this is Rochester. We don't do that here. Um, and I'm like, listen, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, so, you know, Michael is just staring at me like, what is your problem? And, you know, he's Irish, so he takes everything in stride, right? You know, all right. Uh, what are you talking about? And I, then I calmly stepped back and said, it's what the birthday psychic told me. And he said, oh, well, that explains it. The birthday psychic told you that I'm going to disappear. And I said, as if that was some sort of really rational answer that I'm giving him, I passed it off as being something that must have been true. He told me that that was probably the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard, second only to the fact that I believed it and was attacking him in the driveway about it. So, you know, he brushed me off and on we went. After about an hour of like a cold shoulder, I let it go. And we went on with, with our vacation. 
Fast forward, I really didn't think much about the whole psychic read again until September 11th in 2001 when Michael actually went to work at the World Trade Center and uh, he did disappear, literally. Um, he never did come home. He, and it was really bizarre because what the psychic said two weeks ago was actually true. So, you know, it was very strange. I mean, the days after the 11th, I was panicked. I was psychotic. I was just like, what am I going to do? I was just in survival mode. You know, I did what everyone else did. We made signs. We posted them around the city. We went on the news with them. I had all sorts of crazy explanations as to what could have happened. I thought maybe he had amnesia and he didn't know who he was. I thought maybe he was injured in a hospital and, you know, he couldn't talk. I thought maybe he was in a little pocket, an air pocket in the mall, and they were eating pretzels and fountain drinks. You know, you come up with all sorts of stuff. You just don't know what to, none of us knew what to say or do. Needless to say, I I didn't sleep. Um, It had been three days. I just was like exhausted and really didn't know what to do with myself. I always had all the lights on, the computer on, the television was blaring. And so on like the third day, I I would take little cat naps and I would lay like diagonal across the bed with my like head down. And it was after midnight and all of a sudden I heard the gate squeak. We lived in a brownstone at the time, so we had those shutters that had the top shutter and the bottom shutter. Well, I only had the bottom shutter closed. I had the top open so I could see who was coming in and out of our courtyard. And then we had a gate that would come into the apartment. So I heard the squeak and I looked up. You know, I was a little confused because I just came out of a nap or whatever we wanted to call that. And I saw Michael standing right there, in the, right in the window. And I was you know, just like really confused, and he walks in, but he never ever looked at me. He just walked in, like with his head sort of down, sort of looking like he was defeated. That was the best way I can describe it, and sort of shuffling along, and I was peppering him with questions. Where have you been? What's going on? What happened? What happened? You know, and all he could say was, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. He never looked at me, never turned his head, never addressed any of the millions of questions I was throwing at him. He just kept saying he was tired. So he proceeded to walk into the bathroom, and he was unbuttoning his pants and, and like, taking his dick out and putting it in the sink. And I was like, looked like he was going to pee in the sink. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are you peeing in the sink? Which was strange because... It was a bone of contention, literally, because he used to try and like be lazy and wash his dick in the sink because he was uncircumcised before we'd have sex and try and pass it off as a shower. And I was like, that's a European shower. That does not count. Uh, so I was thinking, like, why is he doing that right now? Well, he starts like jerking off in the sink. And I was like, what is he doing? And I'm like, what are you doing? And he still didn't answer me. He just kept saying, I'm so tired. He jerked off in the sink walked into the shower, and he disappeared. I never saw him again. It was the weirdest thing. I thought I was completely nuts. I thought, I'm delusional. I don't know what's going on with me. I didn't even tell my best friend at the time, because I was like, I'm like, something has to be wrong with me that I saw this, because clearly he's not here. So I did the only thing that you know anyone would do. I called the psychic. Um, <laughs> because I figured she's the one who started the whole freaking thing, so we may as well go back to her. So I called her and I said, um, 
this is what happened. And I went through every detail. I told her the whole story, except for the jerking off part, because I didn't want her thinking he was a pervert. Uh, so I didn't tell her that part. And then she you know, proceeded to tell me that when people die abruptly, that they sometimes don't know that they've passed. And their soul lingers. And they go on to pass on to the place where they knew as being like their home or their place where they were comfortable. And in Michael's case, it was probably our apartment and that he had found his way back and then passed on. Once she said that, then I felt a little more comfortable. I was like, well, he kind of like jerked off in the sink. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm like, what's that mean? And, uh, you know, still thinking maybe it's the other woman. Like, I'm still a little pissed. <laughs> But it was, she said, well, that's often their life force. It's like when we're here on Earth, that's our life force, and that was him releasing his life force, which, thank God, that was the explanation. Um, So, you know, it was really interesting. And, you know, over time, over those next few months, I would call her from time to time, and she, you know, check in with Michael, see how he was doing. And, um, you know, she would tell me things like, you know, he just wants you to be happy, He's watching over you. You know, all the things that you would expect a psychic to say. And it's funny. They really did, like, I did find solace in her messages, but it was strange. The one that I really felt the most uh, peace from is really understanding her first reading, because at least I knew what happened to him. Thank you. My name is Kristen Wild. slept a wing I'm so tired My mind is on the blink I wonder should I get up and jerk off in the sink <laughs> Well maybe not It was just an idea My name was William Popson, and my wife Cordelia had died, and I myself had died attempting to dig up her bones. Or at least that's who I was the summer I worked at Ghosts and Gravestones, a ghost tour company in Boston, Massachusetts. It was a great job. Great coworkers, good pay. I had a lot of fun. It was a half trolley, half walking tour. And the thing I love the most about it is uh, I love one person shows. I always have. And this was like getting to do a 70 minute one man show two to three times a night to strangers for money. I was 21 years old. I'm not from Boston, but I was working this job in between semesters going to college in Boston. I had always thought that ghost stories were were cool and scary, but I wasn't as into the supernatural part of the job as much as I was into the doing the show part of the job. A lot of my coworkers, though, they were hardcore believers in the paranormal. They would show me pictures that took in graveyards. Be like, hey, look, Dave, look above the headstone. Can you see the orb? I'd be like, no, I don't see it. Not at all. On August 27th, 2007, I am uh, halfway through the tour. We're on the trolley. I say to the audience that night, the story I'm about to tell you is a little different than every other story I'm going to tell you tonight because this story has no ending. 
That was my William Popson voice. The story I was telling them was the Boston Strangler story. Every single night when I did that story, I would tell them how 19-year-old Mary Sullivan was found on January 4th, 1964, strangled with pink scarves and a greeting card at her feet that said, Happy New Year. Ghosts of Gravestones, it was supposed to be a laugh-out-loud funny and genuinely scary show, but it was also the type of show you would see advertised in the lobby of the Boston Holiday Inn. So the pink scarves and the Happy New Year card, that was one thing, but I knew it wouldn't go over so well if I mentioned that Mary Sullivan had been found topless with semen dripping out of her mouth onto her breasts and that uh, broomstick was found shoved three and a half inches into her vagina. We got to Boston Common, which was the next stop on the tour, and we get out of the trolley, we walk down the steps into the park near the Massachusetts State House, and on the first bench inside the park, there are these two loudmouth teenagers. They're giving me all sorts of shit. They're making fun of me. This kind of on-street heckling. It was pretty par for the course at this job. It was usually simple stuff like, oh, it's a ghost, scary. I was amazed how many people could just do the same heckle as if they knew each other or something. (laughs) On Boston Common, I would always talk about how underneath our feet are tons of unmarked graves because this park was once a popular place for hangings. As I'm doing this part of the show, in the corner of my eye, I see there's a shadowy figure talking to the two teenagers who just heckled me. And I don't think much of it. I keep going on with the show, talking about the dead bodies underneath our feet. When all of a sudden, I see that shadowy figure pull out a handgun, point at the two teenagers, and fire six shots. Immediately, I realized what was happening. I was in shock. And that shock shielded me from feeling any true terror. That shock also made me realize that I had a responsibility to these 30 people, this audience. So I waved my arms. And I yelled out, still in my William Popson voice, right this way, ladies and gentlemen. And I start running towards the nearest park exit. I'm looking over my shoulder, making sure that all 30 of them are behind me and that this gunman isn't heading our way. I exit the park. I hang a left. There are already cop cars and ambulances screaming down the street. I stop in front of the Granary Burying Ground, which was to be the next stop on the tour. And I speak to the audience, this time in my actual William Popson, or I'm sorry, my actual, what's my name again? In my actual David Lawson voice. <laughs> Similar last names, the S-O-N. Could have been more creative back in 2007 with that name. But I speak to them this time and in my actual David Lawson voice. I, I say, is everybody here? Is everybody okay? Does anybody want to continue the show? And they all said they had enough. They wanted to go home. A bunch of them in the audience that night kept saying, oh my God, I thought it was firecrackers, which I later read is actually a common reaction to hearing gunshots when you least expect it, which means as bad of a gun problem as we might have in this country, people still suspect random firecrackers, I guess. 
That was scheduled to be my last night at that job. I was going back to finish my last year of college a few days later. I said to the audience that night, I said, well, that's a wild thing to happen, folks, because this is going to be my last night at this job. They laughed. I was so relieved that, that I got a laugh and could ease the tension. I soon realized, though, that they had misinterpreted that. They thought that I was quitting this job because of the shooting that just happened. And I was pretty pissed that I miscommunicated that. I'm, I'm all about the show must go on, you know, the show above all else. And I, I hated looking that unprofessional. That show was the best night of tips I had all summer, <laughs> which I felt pretty weird about, to be honest. As, as everyone was, was leaving the trolley, this glassy-eyed man came up to me. He said, hey man, can I give you a hug? And I said, sure, and we hugged. To this very day, if I'm in a job interview and they ask me, have you ever had to deal with something stressful and unexpected on the job? I say, you're goddamn right I have. <laughs> now there's two things that have stuck with me from that shooting. The first is how this wild and crazy thing that I personally witnessed was in the headlines in Boston News for two days and then completely disappeared from the news. The two teenagers who were shot, they weren't seriously injured. One got hit in the leg, the other one got hit in the foot, but a bullet struck the Massachusetts State House. And uh, that was the event, actually, that led to there being a curfew on Boston Common, which continues to this day. I had read earlier that year the Boston police were having trouble solving gun-related shootings and the crime and this thing that seemed so huge and wild when I witnessed it was just one more unsolved shooting on that list. The second thing that really stuck with me from that shooting was that if traffic on the trolley had, had been a little slower that night, if I had arrived and had been standing at the top of the steps near the Massachusetts State House just a little bit later, when those shots rang out, I would have been right in the line of fire. Something terrible could have happened to me. The only good side of that something terrible happening to me is that for the rest of existence on every single ghost tour in the city of Boston, when they got to Boston Common, there would be a moment where the tour guy would say, several years ago, right where we're standing right now, a man leading a ghost tour, very much like the one you are on right now, got shot in the face. Thank you very much.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is J.J. Kale and Eric Clapton behind me now. And we just heard from David Lawson, who you can find at dtlawson.com. Before that, a story by Christian Wilde. I hope that all these five stories that were previously only available on our Patreon have proven to you that we have great bonus content over there, so don't miss out on it. Become a member at patreon.com slash risk. As I said before, the next live stream show, the next Risk live stream is on Friday, April 16th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. And what's something that's super fun to get for a friend or a fellow Risk fan, a fan of the state on MTV? Get them a personalized little video greeting from me at cameo.com slash the kevin allison and don't forget to follow us on our socials we're at risk show on facebook twitter and instagram and on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison folks today's the day take a risk Thank you.